If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 12 tonight, jumping back in after a couple of weeks off. 2 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite um, chapters in the Bible, one of uh, chapters, if you want to commit some verses to memory or at least try your best to piece it together with memory, um, this is a chapter you should highlight, underline, and bookmark and read a few times, uh, maybe even before you go to bed tonight. So 2 Corinthians 12, uh, as we get back into this Bible study, uh, here's what's going on. Paul is under fire from a, a lot of different a lot of different directions. Uh, mostly, uh, there are these wannabe superstar apostles. There are these people who are charlatans. They are just in it for the fame and the glory. They're just in it to try to make a name for themselves. Uh, they are trying to usurp Paul's influence, undermine his influence, disqualify him for ministry. They're trying to beat him down and take him down and take him out and get in his place uh, to, to for all the fame and all the glory. So again, you might would think, why would they do that? Um, just like in our world today, there are people that have the wrong motives and the wrong ambition uh, and that are just looking after it for themselves. Same thing 2,000 years ago. So there were these wannabe, Paul calls them super apostles, uh, and he's kind of making fun of them because they're, 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 not, they're not even apostles. They're not uh, called by God at all. Uh, but they're these superstar apostles. They want to do it for the glitz and the glamour, and they are mad that Paul has so much recognition and is so much uh, re- admired and revered, uh, and, and he they're not, and, and, and they're, you know, trying to project this image of this, you know, living the high life and, and, and being, you know, very successful and very pr- prosperous, and, and they found a way to undermine Paul uh, based on a couple of things that we'll look at in a minute. Um, also, though, he's under pressure from church members because these super apostles have been going into churches that Paul has walked out of, and they are uh, trying to, uh, you know, they have successfully dis- influenced these churches uh, to, to, you know, have some doubts about Paul. Um, and these church members, uh, like the people at Corinth, are becoming uh, disappointed in him because of, of, of some things that the uh, opponents of his are, are pointing out. And, and they're being dissuaded from following him uh, and, and, and maybe to turn away from his teaching. Now, remember, the entire basis for discrediting Paul um, is uh, that uh, he's recognized as having the authority of God, and he's the one that you should be listening to and following, yet these super apostles are saying there's two things that are wrong with Paul that should make you have doubt about his authority and, and, and have uh, reconsider whether you should trust him and, and as a messenger of God. And those two things are he's too humble and too meek, uh, and he has experienced too much adversity and hardship. So you shouldn't trust this guy because have you have you ever met him? He's a very humble man. I mean, he's he's kind of he's just he's so meek, and, and that's not that's not what re, what we re recognize greatness in this world. Um, he's he's not a proud man. He's not a boastful man. And if you're really going to be somebody in this world, you got to have your chest stuck out, and you got to be really flaunting who you are and what you know and what you've done. That's not Paul. So you shouldn't follow a man like that. And, and, and have you heard about how much trouble he's always in? He's always facing some hardship. I mean, he's in prison. He's getting shipwrecked. He's getting thrown out of a window. He's being stoned. I mean, can you really believe that a guy like that has the hand of God on him? Shouldn't he be experiencing the opposite of those things if he is God's man? And, and you know, you can imagine even in a world today, uh, our world today, that sounds convincing to a lot of people. Back then, that was even more 
so. Uh, so he's going to address the latter tonight. We've already really heard him address the former. Um, but, but if you weren't with us or you've forgotten, Paul, first of all, combated these super important, self, these self-important glory seekers by boasting of his approach. He said, y'all want to brag about who you are and what you've done, what you know? I'll brag about who I am and what I've went through uh, and, and the kind of person that I am. You guys have a problem with my humility? You guys have a problem with the way I conduct myself and the composure and the disposition that I have? You think that my meekness equals weakness? Uh, maybe according to your rules, but obviously we've heard from Jesus uh, on how uh, these are the true marks of a Jesus follower, especially someone representing Jesus in ministry. And, and I tell you, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people fail to remember that this is foundational when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Christian ministry. There is absolutely no place for arrogance or pride or this overbearing, domineering attitude for anyone who's in Christ. Those are not marks of believers. Those are not marks of true followers of Christ. They are marks of people who are so entrenched in this world and have never met Jesus. Arrogance and pride and boastfulness, those are not becoming qualities. Those are not attributes of a believer, even though we might sometimes be convinced or deceived that they are. Jesus exemplified humility in every way. He demonstrated humility on every occasion. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, much to their, uh, uh, their idea, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus, no, 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 you're king. You should be asking us, demanding us to do what you want and, and, and follow your orders. You should be calling on us to go fight for you and go conquer for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve, to give my life as a ransom. And we know that Jesus put his money where his mouth was, right? Jesus, the night before he died, that he would go on to give his life a ransom for many. He demonstrated what that was going to be, uh, what he was going to do by washing the feet of the very men who would run away from him and, and betray him and deny him. And Jesus said to them, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So just as I've served you and I've been humble and meek before you, you are to do the same. And trust that God is working things out behind the scenes. And that, that our flesh says, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can let God be in control. I've got to roll my sleeves up and I've got to sharpen my sword and I've got to command my pose. That's the way you make it in this world. But Jesus says, no, 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 not in my kingdom. Now, remember, he began his ministry with a major message that said, you've heard, uh, that, that you've heard what blessing or where blessings are found, where happiness is found, where, where peace and power are found in this world. But I think you may have been listening to the wrong, wrong sources. You've been following the wrong rules because in my kingdom, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. All these proclaiming that those who appear to be losing on earth are actually gaining where it counts. Now, those may seem upside down to the way we think, the way we imagine blessings to come from and where we think blessings come from and happiness comes from, but Jesus said, not so. Now, another example that we haven't looked at before is the case of Moses. Moses. Now, Moses, the Bible says this about Moses, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. But when you pair this verse with the summation of Moses' life and ministry, it really makes you think. So the Bible says there that Moses was very meek. Joshua most likely wrote this. Moses was the most meek man, the most humble man, as in you wouldn't know Moses was Moses if you didn't 
if you weren't told, hey, this is the guy who's been on the mountain with God. This is the guy who has been, his face has been shining with the glory of God. This is the guy that held the rod up and the waters parted. This is the guy that commanded Pharaoh to let the people of God go and dropped his staff and it became a serpent and it ate the serpents of the magicians. This is the guy who has the power of God all over him. But you would have never known it by the looks of him, by the disposition he conducted himself with. But Deuteronomy says this, as it gives Moses a sort of a, a send-off. There has not arisen a prophet since, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror, as in they, they shocked people with how God was displayed through them. There has never been a man like Moses before or since. The point is that Moses' meekness gave him exclusive access to the power of God. Don't you see that Moses would have never been the man with the power from God had he not been the man who was meek and humble before people. The people witnessed that power as a direct result of his humility. Again, we aren't impressed, and we're easily fooled by it, but we shouldn't be impressed by arrogance, pride, by people talking big games and looking like they're somebody's. Clearly, the Apostle Paul followed the example of Moses, followed the example of Jesus, because why wouldn't you follow the example of Jesus and Moses? So just as Jesus is God in flesh, walking hand in hand with God, full of the power and revelation of God, just as Moses saw the glory of God glowed with the, the, the likeness of God, Paul was given similar access and similar insight. And he shares with us an experience he had with God. Now, again, he's only bragging about this because he's trying to make a point about how God allowed him to see these things. Paul says, I don't really want to tell you any of this stuff, but I feel like I've got to defend myself because there's a whole lot of people saying a whole lot of wrong and foolish things. So Chapter 12, verse 1 through 6, listen to, how Paul, uh, listen to how Paul describes what God had showed him. Again, meek, humble man, criticized for being not much of a somebody. Yet this is what that man had seen. It is doubtless not prof nor profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body I do not know, or whether out of body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So that means he was caught up, you know, not, not the sky, not, not space, but to actual heaven. This most likely happened when he was stoned at Iconia and Derby in Acts chapter uh, 13, 14. Paul is preaching the gospel uh, in, in those, those cities and he is stoned and drug out as though thought for dead. And, and they're about to have a funeral for him, about to bury him. Uh, and, and he jumps up. Most likely while he was knocked out, God took him to heaven. Now it could have happened another occasion, but that's just the most likely example that we have from the Bible. So Paul says, I don't know if I was dead. I don't know if I was just dreaming. I don't know really what was going on, but I'll tell you what I saw. I know such a man, whether in the body or out of body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for man to utter. Sidebar. You know, I, I often push my glasses up and tell you to beware of people who come, who all of a sudden tell you about things they've dreamed and things they've saw and things that they've witnessed in heaven. You know, I, I tell you to be wary of that. The reason why I tell you to be wary of that is because the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote a, a big chunk of the Bible, the Apostle Paul who wrote uh, the New Testament, right, most of the New Testament, he saw things that God did not let him repeat. So I don't know about y'all, you know, 
God bless anybody that says they saw something and wants to write a book about it and sell it and make money off of it, right? But, but I don't really have a lot of faith in that because the Apostle Paul died, went to heaven, and saw things that he could not and was not allowed to repeat. So here's my, my advice for you. If you want to know what God is like and what God has done, read the Bible. Don't listen to anybody else. Not a preacher with a microphone with nice hair that says they've seen something. Not somebody that has a good story to tell. I'm not saying they don't have good stories to tell, but if it's not the Bible, you probably shouldn't listen to it. Now, that doesn't make us feel good and fill auditoriums up, but that's just, that's just what I think we should stick with, right? So that's a sidebar, whole other sermon. Let's get back to the story. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast. So Paul's saying, hey, God has done this thing. I'm not, I didn't do anything. I didn't earn this. God just kind of gave it to me against my own, uh, against what I deserved. I, I will not boast in who I am. I'll boast in my infirmities. Now, we'll get to that. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. So what is Paul's message is? Don't think me as anybody special or, 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 or significant. Now, you would think Paul, a preacher who has got a lot of influence and a lot of knowledge and done a lot of things, you would think he would just lean into the hype and the fame a little bit and just, just have his day. I mean, he deserved it, right? Paul says, absolutely not. I am not doing this for me, and I did not see the things I saw because of me. God chose to bless me with this. And now we know there's a correlation between Paul's humility and Paul's meekness and God showing him these things that ultimately made him a vessel of God's power and a vessel of God's wisdom and a, a revelation to the rest of the world. So here's why Paul's telling us this. Again, he's, he's, he kind of doesn't want to, can't tell us, doesn't want to tell us. But he's wanting to make it clear, if you doubt his connection with God, he assures us that because of his commitment to the true walk of a believer, his humility and his meekness, that God blessed him with experiences that he cannot even talk about. But also he reveals to us in the next set of verses that part of that exchange to get to see these sorts of things was that he would face persecution at the hand of Satan. So you want to go to heaven and see a, see a lot of glorious things, do you? You want to come back to earth and be filled with the wisdom and power and insight that those things might would do for you, do you? Paul says, well, here's the catch. And he's not saying it's a bad catch. He's not saying it's not a good exchange. He's just making it very clear to us what it takes to get to this place. And lest I should be exalted above measure... By the abundance of revelations, and you can see he's kind of bragging at this, you know, he doesn't want to boast, but he's saying, hey, y'all want to know what I've saw? I've saw a whole lot. I know a whole lot. I, have, I, could, I could talk all day with y'all about what God has showed me, but again, that's not, not for me to do. But lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, literally to punch in and again and again and again, like a boxer training lest I be exalted above measure. Now, who's, who's, who's the one to judge what is above measure or not? Paul says, I just leave it up to God. I just let God make that decision. And God chose that this was, this was my limit. Concerning this thing, I pled 
with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now, you could go into all these, you know, people theorize and they really waste time. What was Paul's thorn? We don't know. There's no way to know. It could be the burden of the church. It could be a sickness. It could be a temptation. It could be a whole lot of other things, but we, we just don't know. And we probably really shouldn't spend too much time speculating because I think that kind of pulls it away. But I also, I'm glad it doesn't tell us because that means you can, you can see this thorn as what your thorn might would be. It could be a temptation. It could be a, a burden. It could be a battle. It could be a, a, a chronic illness. It could be many, any number of things. And I think that's why God doesn't tell us what Paul's was because he wants us to see that this is so, this can be true for us. This can be a story that we can relate to and find help from. So Paul, let's walk through this. Paul, the same man that saw things in heaven that he could not repeat, the same man who witnessed amazing revelations also faced tremendous trials. If you want to know what those trials were, go back and read chapter 11, verses 22 through 33. He gives you a lengthy recap of all the things that he had been through. And that's just, uh, again, that's just a recap. The same man who saw amazing revelations also faced tremendous trials. And Paul is telling us, and here's where we might be a little bit, you know, we might not buy into this immediately. Paul says both of these things were privileges from God. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the amazing revelations. Yeah, that's a privilege. That's a blessing. That's, that's a gift. But are you going to try to convince me that going through trials is a blessing from God, is a privilege that God has given me so that I might encounter him in a more special way? I don't know if I'm ready to sign up for that. You may only think one of these is a privilege, but Paul would say both of them are a privilege. Both of them are a gift. Anyone that's going to be in ministry, anyone who's going to make a difference for the kingdom of God is not just going to be full of revelation and power. They are also going to be well acquainted with grief and sorrow. Paul wouldn't be telling us about his experiences if he weren't trying to make this point. But you could tell by observing his life, he was surrounded by the enemy, facing trials and troubles from every direction. That's why he's being criticized. That's why he's defending himself, because he's being disqualified or discredited by opponents who say, this man suffers too much. Paul says, yes, I suffer a lot. Because it's God who has brought me down this path so that I may experience things like I've experienced. Now, again, that might not sound like it might not make sense to you, but let me, again, let's go back to Moses and Jesus. Now, we know they are meek servants and, and, and humble servants at heart, but they also knew a great deal about suffering. And I think it's going to surprise you how not this suffering wasn't just physical. This suffering also was mental. This suffering was spiritual. Uh, Apostle Paul, he knew a little bit about suffering, a lot about suffering. That's his angle. But, but maybe you didn't know this. Moses suffered from deep, dark, depressive episodes throughout his life. You'd think Moses had life on easy street. He was so close to God. He went to the mountain of God and he saw things that nobody else saw face to face with the glory of God. You would think Moses had the power flowing from him. He could call on plagues, call plagues down on the enemies of God. He could call down manna from heaven. He could call down water, call water from a rock. Moses, who had all this power and all this knowledge and all these, uh, all, all this access, that did not exempt him from spiritual and mental burdens that oftentimes got too heavy to bear. 
If you read through Exodus numbers, there are these lengthy rants where Moses is just talking to God and Moses is just pouring himself out again and again and again and again. And there's times that we want to insert ourselves into those, those conversations and say, Moses, you're the guy who parted the Red Sea. I mean, God did it through you, but clearly you have access to God. You were the guy who went to the mountain. You were the only one let to the top of the mountain. Moses, why are you worried? Why are you doubting God? Now, let me show you a little bit of a snippet of a point when Moses is trying to get God to convince him. And I just want to scream at the Bible and say, Moses, why do you need convincing? Moses in Exodus 33. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Moses, if anybody has God's favor, it's you. Y'all, y'all, y'all follow me there? Moses, you're the guy that was in the desert in the burning bush, right? Moses, you're the guy who literally murdered a man and then God elected you to be the head of his, of his ministry. I mean, can you, can you define favor any other way? Moses, God used you to call out Pharaoh. God used you to lead the people out of, the, uh, out of slavery. Moses, God has used you to do tremendous things. You re- literally received the law of God. Moses, you don't need to be convinced. Moses, why are you doubting this? Now, if, I think this should encourage you because if, if you're somebody that, that doubts and worries and, and you need that reassurance that you, that again and again and again, I just want to say you're in good company because Moses, Moses is asking God to show him, his, to prove to him that he's been favored by God. I mean, clearly Moses was, but just like you, just like me, Moses Needed some reassurance. And, 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 and in between these verses, I'm going to show you, God says, Moses, I promise you, I'm going to be with you. I promise you, Moses, I'm never going to take my hand off you. But Moses doesn't, take, doesn't, doesn't believe it. He says, for how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I mean, I could tell you a few, re- a few re- reasons why you found favor, Moses. I mean, you know, maybe you've been through this before where somebody's trying to convince you that you shouldn't worry and here's thinking, I don't know. Or somebody's trying to convince you that you shouldn't have doubts or you shouldn't be, you know, questioning this and, 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 and you're just sitting there thinking, well, I mean, you could be God telling me this and I'm still going to do it. I, and that doesn't mean that you, you know, you shouldn't believe or you shouldn't, you know, turn away from your doubts, but sometimes you just can't, can't get away. That's just how under attack we can be sometimes. And that's how persistent the devil is on trying to beat the faith out of us and trying to drain the faith out of us. Moses says, God, how can I know? He says, I, I need to see your glory, God. I mean, do you want to see more? I mean, I parted the Red Sea. I, I brought you out of slavery. I showed you my glory in the bush. I mean, I've showed you my glory, Moses. But if you really need to be convinced, I can do it again. And God did it again and again and again and again. Why? Because God understands that, you know what, sometimes we are under such duress. Now, the good thing about Moses is Moses was talking to God about it, not somebody else, right? But, but if you find yourself like this and you're just struggling, Moses is your God. I look to, uh, he, was, he suffered a great deal mentally. This was the leader of the people of God, clearly under a lot of pressure, but, but you can't discount the torment the enemy was bringing on him, trying to wear him down. An even greater example of the middle, mental struggle Moses faced, and this is a few years later after they've been wandering around the desert for a while, uh, comes at the end of a long diatribe where Moses is literally just, I mean, he is unraveling at the seams. And, and, and just listen to how he ends it. I am not able to carry this, all these people uh, alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, God, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. 
Now, I don't think he's saying that stuff lightly. I mean, I think we read the Bible sometimes, we think all these people were perfect, put together people. Moses is kind of, he's kind of in bad shape, don't you think? I mean, he's on the mountain of God saying, God, I can't do this anymore. I mean, you know, and I'm, this is a, a serious subject. God, I'd just, I just rather die than do this. And, and God picks him up and God raises him up and God says, Moses, you, know, I, you, you can't give up, you can't quit. But this is how much, how under persecution, under, under duress Moses was. Moses was a man of sorrow like none other except maybe Jesus himself. Now, Jesus didn't face the same mental pressure that Moses did, not to say that Moses' wasn't legitimate, it was, but Jesus didn't face that same battle but we know the kind of suffering that Jesus went through. Not to discount the emotional abuse that Jesus went through, the mental abuse that he did go through. He was abandoned, he was forsaken, he was, uh, he was you know, his, his own disciples uh, d- disbelieved and disfollowed him, unfollowed him. But just a snapshot of what Jesus suffered. Y'all know these verses, but just, just get it all at once if you can. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him, kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So we've got him being mocked. We've got him being beaten. They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. So spit and struck, and so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, releasing for them Barabbas, scourged him with a Roman cat of nine tails. He delivered him to be crucified. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion as if Jesus demanded that kind of, as if he was that big of a threat. They clothed him in purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. So what do we got so far? He's been spit at, he's been slapped, he's been struck, he's been beat with clubs, he's been uh, uh, pierced with a crown of thorns, he's been flogged as in the flesh has been ripped off of his back. They began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him again. They strike, struck his head with a reed. They spit on him some more. And they kneeled down to insult him, paying homage to him. And they mocked him. They stripped him of his purple cloak. They put, on his, put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross after going through all of that to the place called the skull. And there they crucified him. And isn't it odd how the Bible gives us all that details, but it, it, it can't even, we, can't, we, don't, we don't understand this, but the, the gospel writers don't go into detail about what it means to crucify someone because it was so gruesome. I mean, they, they told us he was spit at and struck and beat and mocked and, 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 and flogged. But when they say crucify him, it's almost like we, we can't really, we can't put into words what that was like. So from mental anguish to physical torment, these clearly weren't disqualifying experiences. So when somebody, you know, again, when somebody gets up and they say, hey, if you're really, if you're really chosen by God and anointed by God and following God, then you're, you know, your mind's going to be perfect all, all times. Your flesh, you know, you're never going to have a... Ba-. Listen, I mean, we, we got a few examples here that if you are, if you want to be close to God, there's an exchange that has to happen. There's, there's, a, there's a price that we pay. But it's worth it. 
Now, none of us will face what Jesus faced, but some of us might face what Moses faced. Some of us might face what Paul faced. The Bible tells us that Jesus' followers will suffer. Paul is going to show us this. This is, this is the whole point of the message. That the sufferings that we face are not dead in roads. They can be transformed into paths that lead us into a deeper, closer relationship and experience with God. Paul could teach on this with authority because he was well acquainted with sorrow and suffering like those who went before him. As these hardships are being weaponized to delegitimize his ministry, Paul knows he's got to set the record straight. And he's already made it clear in the previous chapters that, that he doesn't need their affirmation. He doesn't need their validation. He doesn't need them to approve of him. But he does want us to understand. He does doesn't want them to get the last word about as in describing him and as, as, as depicting his ministry. He, he is concerned that people might misunderstand his ministry and might not truly appreciate what God has been doing through his trials if he doesn't set the record straight. So Paul isn't relying on their approval for self-worth. That's not why he's defending himself. So I want to make that clear because we talked about no need to defend ourselves, no need to be justified or be affirmed by people. But Paul wants us to know that it is important the, the posture with which we conduct ourselves as we go through these trials, as we face these hardships, because God is going to use these things to shine his light through us. So my inner peace might not depend on people understanding me, but my outer purpose very much involves how I'm perceived and how I, you know, communicate myself. Uh, so Paul begins in chapter 12 by giving this testimony about what being in Christ means for him, what it's meant for him, what it's done for him. But he can't just shake off their criticism because he wants them to know, he wants us to know that the hardships and the trials that he's facing are part of God's plan and they may be part of God's plan for you. Paul wants us to know that sufferings and trouble are not detached from our faith in Christ, but are actually key elements to what God is doing within us. This isn't just for our witness. It's also, it's an important part of that, but it's that we might pay attention to what God is doing because some of us, we wake up and the day goes bad and we, can, we immediately discount that God's going to do anything that day. We, we wake up and we look at the news or we look at the paper or we read something or we find out something about ourselves or about our family and as soon as things go wrong, we immediately give up on there being a chance that God can use that day and that may have been the very day that God wanted to do the most tremendous thing in your life. But most of us, when things go a little bit left or right of what we intended or desired, we give up. And that's why this is crucial. Because when things go the wrong way for you, when life begins to unravel for you, or when just when things are not as you wish they would be, that's when you, do, you need to be even more sensitive to what God might be trying to do. So we convince ourselves that we are in Christ, so God is still at work in our lives. God is still involved. My, my point there is that God is not just powerful on the days when the sun is shining and when, on the days when you're making a lot of money and on the days when the world is perfect. God is just as powerful and just as present in the mundane, even more so in your misfortune. So every moment, every season of your life, we should know that they are redeemable. Every moment, every season is redeemable. When we feel emptied, we can be empowered. 
This is, you know, again, this is so important that we bring this mindset on ourselves. Because a lot of us, the moment we feel like we're losing something, we could, you know, losing, we feel like that we're being emptied and drained and discouraged, we completely give up. But when you are being emptied of what you feel like you need, when you're losing something or you're falling behind in some category, some way, shape, or form, that is a reminder that you can still be empowered. And it could be that you're being emptied so that you might be empowered by a greater source. This all goes back to how Jesus established the kingdom of God. Again, he said in my kingdom, we don't panic over what the world panics over. We don't stress over what the world stresses over. We find peace in different places than where the world finds peace. We don't find value in what the world values the most. Jesus insisted, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the mournful. You know what he means by that? It means when life circumstances break us down, we don't fall down. No, we lean into God's outstretched arms and rise up. As in, we don't wait around to be the opposite of poor, the opposite of mournful, the opposite of of meek. We don't try to become mighty and rich and powerful. We don't rely on those things for our power. We, in the moment, in the weak, weak, our weakest moments, in our most vulnerable moments, in our most sensitive moments, we lean into God's outstretched arms and we trust that God is going to raise us up. Think of it this way. In the kingdom of God, what we feel like are exit ramps out of God's goodness are actually entry points into God's power. See, Paul was saying, hey, I've, I've witnessed a lot, of, a lot of amazing things. And part of that, part of being able to witness those things is God has allowed me to suffer. He has brought in the devil to buffet me, to, to literally bring hardships on me. And you may think, whoa, 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 that's the exit ramp. That's the way away from God's goodness. And God said, Paul says, no, 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 no. What you think are exit ramps away from where God or where you want to be and where God should have you at, it might actually be an entry point. Now, sometimes we witness glory through blissful revelations and encounters, but most of the time we arrive there through difficult, painful seasons. Three different seasons Paul prayed for God to remove this thorn. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know how I can relate this to you, but you know what you've been through. You know the seasons of your marriage, the seasons of your, of your financially that you've struggled in, or just your health. You know the times where you fell on your face and you begged for God to heal you, and you begged for God to change things, and you begged for God to change people, and you held on to that hope for a few weeks, a few months, and then it hit the bottom again, and you begged for God to do something, and you begged for God to do something, and then you thought it was getting better, and then it didn't. You've been through those before, haven't you? I don't have to, make, I don't have to bring this to you. You know what this is like. Three different times Paul prayed for God to change things and God did not change things for him. I tell you, on the backs of what we've learned from Moses, on the backs of what we've learned from Jesus, there are other countless stories we could look at. Joseph, who was sold into slavery and then put, then, then betrayed or, or lied about by Potiphar's wife and then put into prison for 13 years of his life. He was wasting away in a dungeon. Daniel, he was taken captive as a child. He was emasculated. He was indoctrinated by Babylonians. Can you imagine a worse experience for a child to go through? His name was changed. His language was changed. 
God has shown us through the, in the Bible that the people who got closest to him weren't just sitting, on a, sitting in a church witnessing revelations that were put out in front of them. They were people in the valleys of life, in the darkest moments of life. Think about the apostles. People who suffered were flogged like Jesus, most of whom were martyred. Stephen, stoned. James, beheaded. Philip, crucified. Matthew, beheaded. James, the brother of Jesus, clubbed and thrown off the temple to add insult to injury. Matthias, stoned. Andrew, crucified. Mark, dragged by a mob of people until he was... The rocks in the road took his life. Peter, crucified. Jude, crucified. Bartholomew, beaten with clubs. Thomas impaled, Luke hanged from a tree, Simon crucified, John boiled in oil. The Apostle Paul beheaded. Paul is telling us that you may think that men like me and men and women like I've been around all my life, you may think that we're somehow losing You may think that God's blessings are nowhere near us, but I promise you all along the way, God has been making himself known to us in ways that makes every ounce of these trials worth it. And you know why we can have that confidence? We saved it for last, verse nine. He said to me, so God said, no. Paul said, could you heal me? Could you change? No, God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to change your circumstances. I'm not going to give you what you want, Paul. I'm not going to do that for you. I'm going to do something better. Our flesh wants to argue and say, God, why can't I have both? But Paul said, hey, if you let your flesh have your way, you would be so far away from God, so conceited and so full of yourself, you wouldn't even want to talk to God. And I think if the guy who went to heaven and came back and talked, I think we can believe him, right? And sometimes against our own, what we want to to believe. I think we should believe him. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness, as in you won't get my strength unless you are weak. I've got to grind away every ounce of your weakness. What you project is your strength. I've got to grind that away. I've got to take that away from you because you will not rely on my grace until you are at your weakest. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. So Paul says, therefore, I welcome my weaknesses. Because in that, I welcome the power of God. Again, if you don't take, don't take anything I've said tonight as gospel, I'm just a messenger. Take this verse because this is the very life power of God. So God didn't answer Paul's prayer for deliverance the way he desired. You may pray for enough money. You may pray for enough work. You may pray for all the right things to happen in your family. You may pray for all the right things to happen in Washington. You may pray for all the right things to happen all around the world at all times. You may pray for this and that and all these things. And God may say no, 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 no to you. The solution that God provides is a much greater provision in the end. God gave more grace because that's where more power was found. 
Now let me just say this. This is the guy, Paul, the Apostle Paul. He, had, he, he could lay his hands on people and heal them. A guy fell asleep in the balcony at a church service one time. He fell over. He, he, Paul went and laid his hands on him and God healed him. This is a guy who believes in the healing power of God. This is a guy who see, has seen the healing power of God. And that same man is saying to you, sometimes God doesn't do that. In my own life, God didn't do that. The power of God, whether in you or on you or through you, is only realized when the grace of God becomes sufficient for you. When we rely on God's grace more than we rely on anything in this world for favor and comfort. And the only thing that brings, that brings that about is our becoming keenly aware and acquainted with our weaknesses. So that we understand that only God's grace will truly satisfy us. So concerning our hardships and our trials and our burdens... Sometimes God removes it. Most of the time, he chooses to use it. Sometimes God removes it. Most of the time, he uses it. He brings out our weaknesses so that we may take hold of his power. God knows us better than we do ourselves, right? God knows the only way we're going to get the power that's available to us is to be drained of our power. It could be your own self-sufficiency. It could be your pride. It could be your own, you know, your, your wealth. It could be any number of things. It could be your health. God sometimes allows us to be wrung out so that we might be filled with something better. Our nature is so that, is so that we think this isn't for us. We, we, if, if it wasn't for this, we convince ourselves that our strength is enough, our accomplishments are enough, this world is enough. We're deceived again and again and again. We fall for politics and money and wisdom and attention, hedonism and pleasures and indulgences. Yet take it from Paul and Moses and Jesus. It takes being broken in order to be raised up in true power. I, I don't know what you're facing tonight. I, I, I don't know what you're going through. And I can imagine it can be heavy for some of you, whether it's mental or spiritual or physical. I'm not making light of that. I pray for God to heal you. I really do. I believe he can and I hope that he will. But I know there are many of us in situations that God may very well continue to say, I'm going to use it. I'm not going to remove it because I am going to give you something better than a temporary bit of peace and pleasure. I'm going to give you something better than something temporary and material. The true provision is falling on our face and asking for God's sufficient grace so that his power may be made manifest. Sufficient grace makes for manifest power. When God's grace is sufficient for you, his power is manifest in you. If we rely on 20% of God's grace and 80% of what else he can give us, then we will never know the true manifest power of God. The, the only way we can be filled with God's power is we say to him, your grace is sufficient. If he brings you more, that's great. If he doesn't, that means he's got something even better for you. Verse 10 and we're done. This takes a lot, of, of, a, lot of, a lot of guts to say, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecution and dis distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Paul says, I take pleasure in. Now, I don't think he said, God, thank you for this problem. I don't think that. But I think when he realized he was going through something that wasn't going to go away very quickly, it could be something with a person in his life. It could be something with a health crisis in his own flesh. It could be something in the church. It could be something that he's observing around the world. I don't know what it might would be, but I know this. We know what he's talking about, don't we? We know. We've prayed for husbands and wives and children and, and, and family members that just won't repent and won't turn to Jesus. We've prayed for people that are sick. We've prayed for ourselves. We've been prayed for. We've asked for God to move in our country. And sometimes God just says no. And that doesn't mean he can't or won't do something in the future. But he says right now, right now, I want you to understand my grace is sufficient for you. So you want true strength? You want true strength? It's found, it's found when real weakness relies on the marvelous grace of God. So how do you get the strength that is not of this world? In your real and raw weakness, you rely on the marvelous grace of God. He will share with you the mighty matchless power. Rely on his grace. He will give you his power. And you can't get that from this world. You can't get that from anything in this world. If he gives you something beyond that, then hey, that's great. But if he doesn't, you haven't lost anything. And, and, and actually, you've gained something that nobody else can ever offer you. And when you get to heaven, when you get to heaven, you'll, you'll know that I got a taste of this on my way here. True power comes from the grace of God and the grace of God is taken hold of at our weakest moments. Take it from Moses, take it from Jesus, take it from Paul. His grace is sufficient for all of us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for just walking us through this and helping us understand this because we, Lord, we read this in our flesh and we immediately say, I'm out. We immediately say, I don't know about that, God. I don't believe that. I can't understand that. And I understand why people would, would say, I don't know about this. Yet, God, you have something to give us that is greater than what this world can provide. It's your power. And your power comes to us at our weakest moments, in our weakest episodes. Lord, it may be a weak a mental episode, a weak spiritual episode. It could be a weak physical season. It could be anything. It's in those moments when we feel like we are going to, about to give up. It's in those moments that we can rely on your grace and you pour out your power in mighty and marvelous and matchless ways. So God, help us. Help us not to be discouraged when you say no, but help that to be an invitation that we would lean even harder and farther into your outstretched arm. Because when we are weak, we can be strong. God, make us strong. Give us strength. Make your grace sufficient so that your power may be manifest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.